Trends will come and go, but good work endures. Hopefully. I have to believe that's true because I seem to be devoting much of my life and career to making and talking about work that is not what you might call trending. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. There's always that tension between showing up in your moment and not bending to the whims of what's popular. My dad has repeated the same mantra for as long as I can remember. It's, let history decide. It's an expression that serves both as a form of self-propulsion and self-preservation for him. It means, keep going. Don't worry about how your work is received at this moment. Because in the end, it may prove to be more valuable than you could have ever expected. It means, if you think it's important, then go ahead and do it. And don't worry if it's popular right now. You never know how it's going to be seen through the lens of history. That kind of thinking is probably what motivated him to spend much of his life and career documenting, championing, and creating work that was often outside of the mainstream, outside of the commercial realities of their day. Not that he's opposed at some point to a little success. I mean, who wouldn't want to have a hit? It's just that he seems to be guided more by what's important to him, and I guess he encouraged me to do the same thing. And that kind of thinking also relies on a belief in the importance of memory, a belief in history and in the idea that the contribution we make today might have value in the future, or let's be honest, that there will even be a future, that comes with a sense of responsibility. I feel that responsibility to carry on the work that my dad started. In fact, I think it's work that his father started before him, and it's work that I hope my daughter might carry on after me. This is nothing new. This is what I think it means to be human, to leave a little trace of yourself in the memory of those who know you, who come into contact with you or your work, And let that tiny fragment be woven into the great fabric of the firmament, the universal tapestry, the ongoing and ever unfolding ribbon of time. But also to, as Baba Ramdas told us, be here now. That's the ongoing negotiation between artists and time. How to respond to the demands of the day and also stay true to one's own heart. Daniel Lanois, arguably one of the most influential producers of his time, told me recently in our podcast interview that contemporary work is about mindset. It's easy to assume that you need the, you know, the latest uh, equipment to, to do great contemporary work. But I think contemporary work has to do with vision as much as anything else. Maybe somebody's been through uh, something emotional and they feel something deeply, and that would be the center of the picture, not whether you know, you're know you using a sequencer or a beatbox or somebody's hitting a tambourine. That part of it wouldn't matter nearly as much as why is this person speaking? Why are they singing? Why do they write what they wrote? Um, and so on and so on. So the, uh, the I think the future belongs to vision uh, along with technology. So that's basically where I'm coming from. Which is why it may seem somewhat unexpected that today I'm here to talk to you about my new record called What's Trending. What's Trending? trending. I am interested in the creative process, and this podcast usually focuses on the process of my guests and on the intersection between the lives they live and the work that emerges out of their experience. And in that spirit, I want to share some of my own experience, my own creative process with you. I don't think there's time to tell you about all of the songs on this record, so I'm choosing a handful of tracks to go deep on, to stoke the fire of your interest. 
From the moment I was born, I think, I felt like I belonged to the wrong generation. I spent my teenage years mostly listening to the music of my parents' youth, watching their movies and reading their books. As a child, I wanted to pass as an adult. I even remember my high school girlfriend looking at me once with disappointment and saying, you dress like my father. And I remember taking that as a compliment. But now, as an adult, I'm doing my best to fit in my own child's generation. My 11-year-old daughter, Soul, is clearly not suffering from the same confusion or delusion that I had about where she fits. She's a total product of her time. She loves to tell me what's going on, what's happening, what's trending. So I've been shamelessly mooching off of her youthful exuberance for years now. But when I can, I also try to sneak in a bit of my own classicism into her diet, too. I play her some of my favorite songs, which she tolerates reluctantly, sometimes. For example, when she was younger, I taught her the old Dave Frischberg, Bob DeRoe classic, I'm Hip. I'm hip. I'm no square. I'm alert. I'm awake. I'm aware. I am always on the scene. Making the rounds, digging the sounds. I buy people magazine to I'm hip. Like dig. I'm in step When it was hip to be hip I was hip I don't blow But I'm a fan Look at me swing Ring-a-ding-ding I even call my girlfriend man Cause I'm hip I'm hip is a song that contains A lot of important lessons for me First of all Dave Frischberg and Bob DeRoe Are both the kinds of singers Who I aspire to be like Their conversational Almost off-handed phrasing conceals just how much craft and control is there. And the song, I'm Hip, is written both as a celebration and a parody of a thing. Because the hipster character in the song is clearly a little ridiculous. He's a jazz musician's idea of an unhip person who thinks they're actually hipper than they are and who wants to hang out with the jazz musicians. But at the same time, the song also speaks to a lot of inside information that only a truly hip person would catch. And the melody is deceptively tricky. The chord changes are quirky and twisted. The lyrics are artfully constructed. In short, I'm hip is hip. So I used to sing it with soul. Here we are jamming on it together back in 2018 when she was seven. I'm hip. I'm no square. I'm alert. I'm awake. I'm aware. I am always on the scene. Look at me swing. Ring a ding ding. I read people mad. Ha, ha, ha. I'm so hip. Over the years, as I'm putting soul to bed, I'll grab a guitar and sing to her. And I even have gotten into the habit of writing songs with her at bedtime. Not like bedtime songs necessarily. There's actually something about knowing that she's only kind of half listening and half drifting off to sleep that puts me in the right headspace to work out an idea. And as a song starts to take shape, I know I'm onto something if she says to me, You better record this. Such was the case when I wrote What's Trending, which was really kind of a riff on the idea of I'm hip. One night as I started to work the words out and find the general shape of a melody, I hit record on my phone to capture it. Yeah. I know all the things to say. I know all the songs to sing. I know all the games to play. Baby, I know everything because it's trending. And a few minutes later, Soul said, you better record this. We both thought it was hilarious when I responded that I already was rolling on it. 
ask of me. Don't think I'm not. Much like the hipster character in Frischberg's song, my character in What's Trending explains, I know all the things to wear, I know all the hottest shows, you can take me anywhere, because I know, baby, I know. So there's a tension that runs through the song, which professes to be up on the latest trends, but is also inspired by the kind of song that fell out of fashion years ago, if, in fact, it ever really was in fashion. When it came time to record the song, I did borrow a bit from the sound of lo-fi hip-hop and alternative R&B. The whole track is covered in a kind of warbly film. The drums include the sound of an iPhone texting in rhythm, and although the groove is much straighter than the Jay Dilla drunk drumming thing, there is a nod to that kind of feel too. And then Michael Lenhart, who's a brilliant multi-instrumentalist composer and producer, played the brass on the track. Michael also comes from a musical family. He's part of a lineage, and he's the custodian of that kind of intergenerational knowledge that was passed down to him, and which he's beginning to share with the next generation. Michael's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times, most recently in 2021, for an episode about aging, where he talked about finding himself at that midpoint between youth and experience. I'm human. Of course, I don't want to get replaced by anyone. I'm wary of someone being quote unquote, better than me at what I do. And at the same time, why not share this, the knowledge that I have? Yeah. And I'm not going to be here forever. It can't just be about me doing my thing, getting this success, feeling good about my stuff, making it, it, the world is not revolving around me. So share the stuff, pass it on to the next generation. It doesn't have to be with everyone, but when you find someone that you connect with, that's a valuable holder of this information, share it, and often it will come back and boomerang and lift you up, you know? What better way to pass it on to the next generation than to sing What's Trending with Soul? She sings on the track with me. And although she's just a kid now, I can't wait to let history decide about this one. Some people worry about what happened in the past. Things that ever or that stand the test of time If you're in a hurry Or you want to make new friends Following the trends Is the way to cut the line What's trending? While What's Trending was born out of an experience with my daughter, the song There Was a Fire belongs to me and my father. And in order to tell you that story, I need to tell you this one first. Forty-something years ago, a group of post-60s, non-traditional, progressive Jews in Madison, Wisconsin, got together to put on their own high holiday services. That's the Jewish New Year. It wasn't a traditional synagogue experience. It was quite intentionally alternative. A group of families with no formal affiliation got together and rented a building to hold these services. As it turned out, the building that they used had originally been built as a synagogue. In fact, it's one of the oldest freestanding North American synagogues. It's called the Gates of Heaven. 
But it had been years since it was used by a formal congregation, and it had since been converted into a city-owned building, categorized technically, I think, as a public shelter. The rabbi, such as she was, Hannah Rosenthal, was in fact an unordained former rabbinical student turned political activist. The cantor was a local jazz singer, and the music was arranged and performed by a local jazz musician, my dad. I grew up sitting on the piano bench next to him, watching him play Avinu Malkenu, Osei Shalom, Hatikva. I watched him, I studied him, I turned the pages for him, I even added a few flourishes of my own in the upper octaves. There was so much mythology that developed around this community over the years that it's hard for me to separate the idea of Jewishness from that experience. What had begun as a small group of families eventually grew until there was a line to get into the building for the high holidays. What had started out as a free-form set of stories and songs over time became codified. Mimeographed handouts became perfect-bound books. The songs that had been somewhat haphazardly arranged for the services became ritualized and memorized. The giant Torah that we would read out of was what's called a martyred Torah. It was actually carried to the gates of Auschwitz, buried outside the camp by Jews who in all likelihood did not survive, and then rediscovered after the war. And because it had been buried, it was no longer fit to be used in a traditional synagogue because that's uh, against the Torah rules, I guess. But a less religious community like ours could still use it. In fact, we loved the story of our martyred Torah, how it connected us directly to the history of our ancestors. I think we loved the stories we told about our Torah more than we loved the stories that the Torah told to us. The experience of playing music for the High Holidays ultimately led my father to make an album of Hebrew liturgical music performed by Jewish jazz musicians. It was called Life's a Lesson, and it came out 30 years ago. As he was trying to figure out how to release it, there was a piece that was done on him for CBS Sunday Morning. And watching that piece today is like stepping into a time capsule, seeing younger versions of myself, my friends, and my family in that public city shelter in Madison, singing those haunted melodies. The music is ancient, chanted by elders, cherished by parents, repeated to daughters and sons. The Rosh Hashanah service is observed around the world and around this one-room synagogue. A place where Ben Sidron's roots run deep. There were two Jews in my high school. One was my sister and mm -hmm. the other one was myself. Uh, I experienced uh, anti-Semitism directly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and jazz was my salvation. After he made life's a lesson, my dad continued to be kind of interested in the conversation around Jews and music. And eventually he wrote a book about the Jewish contribution to popular music in America called There Was a Fire. The name refers to a story about the Baal Shem Tov, a legendary rabbi. The story, I think, is about memory. Okay, so I told you all that so I could tell you this. In 2021, after 40 years of holding those high holiday services in Madison, that small group of organizers who had been keeping the flame lit decided not to continue anymore. The circumstances had changed. The children had grown up and moved away, like me. The context around the tradition had shifted, and then COVID disrupted the community. And the ritual that once felt filled with meaning was becoming hollowed out somehow. 
That summer, I drove back to Wisconsin from Brooklyn, determined to capture our little community one last time before the flame went out for good. We decided to gather in our building to film the services for posterity so that they would be remembered. And since the Delta variant was raging that season, we decided to keep the gathering small. It was just a few families, not unlike the way it had started. To mark that moment, that last gathering, my dad and I wrote a song called There Was a Fire. Okay, so you're going to be talking. I'm talking about how the gates of heaven, high holiday services, are going to exist in our memories. But that's a very powerful place for them to be. I didn't think of it as a song for me to record. I just wanted to perform it for our final service and document it, which we did. My dad told the story that inspired the title, and then I sang the song. We close our service tonight with a story. A story from hundreds of years ago. It's about the great rabbi, the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov and his congregation deep in the pale of settlement, had a problem. The congregation always has a problem, no matter where they are. A few weeks later, when I got back to New York, I decided to record it for myself. Mark Dover played an incredible clarinet solo, and eventually both my dad and my daughter sang on it too, and helped to keep the flame lit. There was a fire and the people were saved. We've all heard plenty of pandemic projects by now. Three years in, it's an old story. I've told plenty of them here on this very podcast. Making work during a global crisis meant that we were all dealing with what's trending on some level. There was just no way to avoid it. But I didn't ever want to make a record that would be stuck in its moment or less interesting to listen to in the future. On the other hand, how could we not be influenced by the intensity of what was happening to us? I remember a couple weeks into the lockdown in 2020, There were some indications that, with industry and transportation at a standstill, the planet was healing itself. Pollution was lessening, waterways were clearing up, the stars were shining a little brighter in the night sky. I watched my then third-grade daughter try to make sense of what was happening and wondered how she'd remember this moment later on. On March 21st of that year, I sat down at the piano and wrote a song about hope called It's All Right. After that recording, I listened back, reflected for a minute, and then I thought, this is shit. Too simple, too obvious, too sentimental, maybe even too overtly gospel for me to sing. See, we can't always be trusted with our own work. I don't know if it's shit or not, but I do know that when I rediscovered that little iPhone memo in my phone a year later, it spoke very deeply to me. It was like I had sent myself a message from the past, and it took me all that time to catch up and be able to receive it. 
Pretty quickly, I decided to record the track. And I did it in the same manner I often do, playing all the parts and singing it in my studio at home. I had most of it finished, but I knew that it needed something special to complete it. And I kept thinking to myself, I bet Janice Siegel from the Manhattan Transfer would sound great on this. When I interviewed Janice years ago for this podcast, she explained to me why she was such a sucker for vocal harmony. I think people respond to harmony. They, they look at it and attach a meaning to it. Like these people get along. These people are blending. Mm -hmm. Even though they're different, they're raising their voices together and sublimating their own, for the moment anyway, their own personal desires to make this other sound, to make mm -hmm. a fifth sound. They look at it in a, in a more, in, I, I think in an unconscious way, as a, as a sign of uh, hope <laughs> in the world. So I knew that Janice would have a lot of ideas for this song. But before I called her, for some reason I decided to send the track to my dad to see what he heard on it. And incredibly, he wrote back, why don't you ask Janice Siegel to sing on it? So that's what I did. And that's how I found myself at Janice's apartment in the West Village recording her beautiful layered vocals on the track. The stars are shining brighter than they ever have in all whispering a message just from mother nature and from father time that we've got nowhere to go and then of course i put my daughter soul on it and i also added angela faith an incredibly talented singer from washington dc then just before i was going to mix the song lewis cato came over to the house and i played it for him i knew from my interview with Lewis years earlier, that he would understand exactly where I was coming from with the song, maybe even too well, considering that he was raised listening exclusively to praise and worship music before becoming one of the most in-demand musicians for all kinds of artists. I only heard music in church. Tell yeah. me about, so tell me about that. That was That's, an, that's a really defining point of, uh, of, of my story, is that we weren't allowed to listen to secular music, which was anything not Christian. So I'm still relatively new to... So much of the things that I've found to be like, you know, my sort of home base, mm -hmm. like all these staples of music, James Brown and Miles Davis. And up until I was eight or nine, I, it was like really old, stomp, clap. It's like a small town in North Carolina. Yeah. So like real traditional, like, you know, stomp, clap. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Since I laid my burden down, you know, mm -hmm. just you know, <laughs> 10 minutes later, friends don't treat me like they used to since I laid my, you know, just burden down, burden down. Today, Louis Cato is the band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. But fortunately, this was back when he had a little more time on his hands. As he listened to the song, Louis said, well, what about a solo over the outro? I said, yeah, let's set up a time to do that. And he just smiled and picked up an acoustic guitar and started playing and singing. And I raced to put a mic up in front of him. And that was how Louis Cato came to put the finishing touches on It's All Right. It's All Right, It's All Right. And it's All Right, It's All Right. 
around the same time I rediscovered that voice memo for It's All Right in the spring of 2021, I was busily interviewing guests for this podcast, and I talked to Boz Skaggs. I remember he was philosophical, rhapsodic, even a little nostalgic about his life in music. I remember a particularly lovely day, just being still, and I started to write something, and uh, I started to just... Uh, Think about my age and mm -hmm. think about this time of life and, and noting how different uh, some things are to me now. The way I consider things, some things I, there's certain considerations that I don't have anymore, certain worries I don't have anymore, uh, certain ease of just life in, in general that I embraced for the first time in my life. It made me think, you know, this is an important time. You know, it's magic what we do. Mm -hmm. It's magic that we feel. It's magic just to sit in a, alone in a room with an instrument or your voice and, and, and let those vibrations, not to sound too hippy about it, but let it happen to you. Let it wash over you. It's one of the greatest joys in life. Mm -hmm. And we, we are chosen. We, are, we touch that. We get a hold of that live wire and mm -hmm. we are addicted to it for the rest of our lives. It's like blood. So, yeah, to be able to keep that energy, to stay in that realm, to stay in that state is what it's all what we're all about. In corresponding with Boz about our interview episode, I signed one of my emails to him. I'll see you when the masks come off. And I hit send. And then I thought about what I had just written, swiveled in my chair from the computer to the electric piano behind me and immediately started writing what would become my song. When the mask when comes the off. Mask comes Talk about a live wire. For the first few minutes, I was thinking of it as a kind of Donald Fagan-style blues. A little while later, I was at the acoustic piano with it moving it around. And then a little while after that, I was at the guitar with it, putting the bass line together, and I had the first verse and chorus. When the mask comes off, we're gonna stay out all night long, stay out all night long. The next day, when I started to record it, I ended up putting more of a Minneapolis funk sound on it. When the mask comes off, we'll stay out all night long. And pretty quickly, I decided to ask my pal Michael Thurber to feature on the song. Michael has been a proponent recently of a kind of radical authenticity. We talked about it late last year for a piece I did on him for WBGO. And if you're going to do it, you should really like go for broke and really get super real and go super hard. So that's just sort of my approach, because otherwise it's like, why did people pay money to come and see you? The older we get, like time is valuable and we've all been in places that we don't want to be in. So I'm like, if people are going to be with me, I really want to give them something that's going to make them feel something. When you're making a real genuine presentation, there's always going to be people that are like, you know, uncomfortable with that or whatever. But I think it's about it's about being real like if that's really who you are and that's really where you're coming from and you really know how to stand behind that stand flat-footed and actually like believe in what you're doing you know musically and lyrically then even if people don't like it it's still a thing but also most people wind up like you, you win a lot of people over because I think everybody just wants to see something real everybody wants to have that sort of human experience of of really connecting with somebody Drawing on that kind of honesty and connection, Michael wrote what is, I think, my favorite verse on the track. When the mask comes off, I want to see who you become. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
And then Ben Flux, the great saxophone player, put on the finishing touches. You never really know where the work is going to come from, what the source of the inspiration is going to be. But if you're in the habit of writing, almost anything can set you off. The late, great Peter Straub told me that inspiration is real, but it's earned. If you're ready. I really did learn that. I had very beautiful, uh, exciting moments of inspiration. But mainly, the kind of inspiration I was talking about was just the feeling of being able to sit down and pick up a manuscript, a, a narrative that you set down yesterday and make things up in a, a logical, articulate, uh, developing manner. If, you, if you're at that stage and if you're in the right shape, it happens fast. I mean, you, you don't have to revise much and wonderful information and ideas kind of flow through. An actor, writer, and Zen priest Peter Coyote described it as tapping into the spinal telephone when we spoke last year. Uh, the spinal telephone is plugged into the universal trunk. So, for instance, Buddha's assertion is that we're all enlightened. And the only thing that stands between you and recognizing your enlightenment are sort of unresolved dark impulses, greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the big three package that all children are born with. It's the human package. Hmm. You know, there's nothing needier or more demanding than an infant. But that same infant can grow up to be a rabbi or the Dalai Lama or Bishop Tutu or Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X through practice, through work, through deep thought. So I like to tell people the back of your head is open onto the universe. And when we're at our most sublime as artists, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we just don't know. Last May, my friend Annie had an accident. It was just a total fluke. It was a crazy thing that in a hundred years of worrying about all the dangers lurking in the corners of your life or all the possible ways to get hurt, no one would have ever thought to include what happened to her. But she found herself in a hospital with a serious head trauma and a lot of uncertainty about whether or not she would survive. And if she did, what life would be like for her. And at that time, it seemed to me that she was hanging by a thread. I found myself thinking about just how fragile our situation is, about how hard it is to die, but how close we are at every moment. I sat down and I wrote Hanging by a Thread. Hanging by a thread, watching the water rise. COVID had certainly already put some things into perspective, how things we take for granted can disappear in an instant, for example. But that's not what inspired the song. And listening back to it today, it, it almost sounds to me like a lament for the planet, like it's about the environment. But that's not what inspired it either. It was Annie lying in the hospital, waiting for her brain to wake up. And I'm happy to say that it did wake up, and she is fine today. But I recorded the song when it was still a little touch and go. I did it as soon as I could, and that happened to be during a day off while I was on tour in Madrid a few weeks after I wrote it. I asked my friend Jorge Drexler if I could borrow his studio to record the song. I'm so used to recording in my own space, and it's such a treat to walk into somebody else's and play their instruments and read their room. I let the environment and the sounds lead me and ended up with a very haunting sonic palette. Upright piano, cajon, marimba, synth bass, and nylon string guitar. Hanging by a thread, watching the water rise. 
Living on borrowed time Wondering where it ends Hanging by a thread Above a great divide Acting like we can fly And that it's not pretend Oh, but then again We know that we're just space of a couple of hours in Madrid, the track and my lead vocal were done. And then back home in Brooklyn, a few weeks later, I asked my friend Michael Hurst to put some sweetening elements onto it. Theremin and whatever else he wanted to put. He ended up playing saw and some tremolo acoustic strings of some kind and effects. Michael had told me years earlier, when we spoke for this podcast, about why he's drawn to those kinds of sounds. I just don't know that anybody should take themselves so seriously. We are such minute little specks of nothingness. Who gives a shit? You know, it's like I enjoy life and I want to keep it that way. And the minute I feel like you become so incredibly serious about your work or anything, it's not fun. And I want to have fun. And once again on Hanging by a Thread, I rounded out the track with Soul, who sings the verses with me. And also I added my niece Zelta, who sings a vocal line on the track. Hanging by a thread is the price to pay for another day without an end. All that lies ahead is held together by a little thread. We're here, but we're just hanging by. Having my daughter and my niece on it heightened the message of fragility, mortality, and continuity of the song. Soul and Zelta actually were guests on this podcast also last year, and they spoke surprisingly eloquently, as the then 10-year-olds that they were, about what it means to live a good life. Everyone has a mixed life. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's not a definition of a good life, because like if you live in a mansion and have tons of money and everything you own is made out of gold and mm-hmm. some people would consider that a good life but maybe that's but not a good life it, like you could like be you have at home you have a fine life with your family and a home like you don't have to have a ton of money and like a huge home and a ton of stuff and a golden toilet a lot of the people i i love and i know relate to music and also i think it's just music is important because it, it can keep you happy. It can, Yeah, it can definitely keep you happy, and it can definitely make you have a good life. You also don't have you. to make it or sing it or play it. You can, you can listen. listen to it, right. and that can make you happy. It can make you feel a lot of things. Like maybe sometimes sad, you'll want to feel even. sad, and so you'll put music on to feel sad, or you want to f- remember something. Do you choose music that you want to listen to based on the way you want to feel sometimes? Yeah. I like to listen to music when I'm— Usually when I'm drawing in the living room, I like to put on my headphones and I just blast like Billie Eilish in my ears. And like it makes me happy and it makes me sad Mm -hmm. because like I love that music so much, but it also makes me so sad because I have so many feelings about it and for it. Since you both sing, how has that changed the way you listen to music? Like do you listen to songs sometimes and think I would like to sing this or I wonder how they sang it? Yeah, I mean. Or somehow I sometimes I think like this sounds like me. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, or like, I sound like them. I sa- yeah, same. Like, I find that when I practice a song in a, in singing lessons, 
I sort of like feel connected to that song. Mm-hmm. The lives we live and the work we make out of it. Let history decide. That's what's trending in my world. The album What's Trending comes out this Friday, May 10th. I'll be at Rockwood Music Hall Stage 3 that very night in New York to celebrate and play the songs. Then I'll be on the road in Europe in April. All those dates are available at my website, leosidron.com. If you're nearby, come say hello, keep the flame lit, and contribute to the ongoingness of it all. Thanks to my friends who appear on the record, especially those who I was not able to name today, including Jamie Brevik, Max Darmon, Joy Draglin, John Fields, Lauren Henderson, John Lampley, who's about to take a solo now. Also, Orlando LaFleming, Greg Ryerson, Jake Sherman, John Snyder, Nina Zeitlin. I've interviewed many of them, and you can hear those conversations in the archive at third-story.com. That's where you can also drop me a note, sign up, subscribe. Then it's wbgo.org slash studios to pick up what the good folks on Wayne Shorter Way are putting down. Patreon.com slash Third Story Podcast is where you can head if you're feeling a little extra. I'll be back again in your headspace with some more regularly scheduled programming and another deep dive with another great artist before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. Man, that's crazy. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org/studios.